Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. Becca has extensive experience working with groups and individuals to foster communication and effective collaboration among diverse stakeholders. Becca helps her clients implement strategies that increase their emotional intelligence and efficacy. She is known for her clear communication, innate ability to foster trust, and firm yet gentle approach to helping others recognize their blind spots and engage specific tools to articulate and reach their goals. She gracefully supports her clients through self-reflection, new learning, and increased awareness of their impact on others. She works with leaders of all types and has a special passion for those newer to leadership as well as those who hold societal privilege and want to address their roles in upholding and then dismantling systems of oppression. Becca and I discuss how she works to help human systems become more functional. We touch on a number of issues. We talk about why ensuring all voices are included in planning processes is important, as well as why it's so important for leaders to be clear about how the input will be used and how final decisions will be made. Why it's important for leaders to not only have intelligence, but also emotional intelligence and somatic intelligence. And we dig into what that actually means. And that it's not just mind, body, and spirit, but it's mind, body, spirit, emotions, and identity, as well as what the buffering sign on your computer has to tell us about today's work environment. Welcome, Becca, to the podcast. Uh, Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. And um, just to kind of give people some context and and get us started, could you just describe what drew you to the work that you do and describe your journey to to where you are now? Um, I really feel like what I'm doing right now has brought together a whole bunch of threads of my life into one place. And so it's a really inspiring, invigorating place to be. I'm the third generation in my family to be doing organization development work. And then, so that's what exposed me to that human systems piece of what I do. I also spent a long time working in public health and sustainable agriculture. And so mostly in the nonprofit and academic sector, which has given me, I continue to be on the learning journey around social justice and issues I was working on at a systems perspective there. And then I've always, my whole life, had a really strong interest in dance and movement and yoga and that sort of thing. And so now I feel like in the work that I do now, which is mostly around supporting human systems to be better at whatever it is they're trying to do, and especially around the communication within that system and the functionality within that system, I take a really whole person and whole system perspective on that. So not just working with the mind, but working with other aspects of the whole being. And so it was sort of all these different interests of mine coming together into one place. It was being <laughs> being in human systems and then again and again seeing being uh, things that I had sort of heard growing up, like that happen often in human systems. Like we're humans, we have human tendencies. And just seeing those things has what was what sort of inspired me to make the jump from public health into really working with, with the systems rather than within the systems. Can you give me an example of what one of those things were that you you're like, oh, I remember them talking about that and now I'm seeing it. So there's a lot of talk about... Um, people working either on or in their business or their organization. And so sometimes we're so much in it that we forget to work on it. And so we talk about process and we talk about content. And sometimes people are so engrossed in the content that they forget to pay attention to process. And process can be relationships. It can be 
the processes for how information flows, for the timeline for projects, whatever it might be, the structures and processes, both interpersonal and organizational, that support what's going on. And I just remember working in an organization, and there was this person who came in, and she went through this whole workshop with us about how to create work plans and how to start with objectives and things that we wanted to do and make these big plans. And then my boss was like, okay, make, make a draft plan for our organization. And I think I remember this so specifically because I went away with my family that week, but it was like really important that it be done. Um, so I agreed to do it while I was away and I worked on it a lot while my family was down swimming in the lake. And then I came back and I gave it to my boss and never heard anything. It was just like crickets. And it was just an example to me of like, even when we're trying, we don't always follow through like those things sit on the shelf or in the email inbox and just never really get enacted within the organization. And from what you've learned now, looking back on that, what might you have said to the leader, how you might have done it, approached it differently, um, considering your perspective now? Great question. I'm, what I'm working on now in my life, and I think it relates to this, is getting really clear on my own boundaries and also exploring other people's expectations as much as possible. So I think I would have had more of an upfront conversation with my boss of what does this look like? How do you, how do you want it to be? What's really important about this? And then what will be done with this once I finish it? And can we set, put the meetings on our calendar now? For the times we're going to talk about this and this and this. I was younger then and less experienced and didn't really have the same, like, I'm going to take the initiative and make sure that this happens because it, after all, it's my time and the organization's time and I don't want to waste either. Yeah. And I also think, you know, I, I remember being on a board one time where, you know, I had raised the issue of uh, the organization doing strategic planning and the executive director said, well, why don't you go write us a strategic plan? And I was kind of like, wait a second, that's not how it works. I could go do that, but it wouldn't be at all useful because it wouldn't be informed by, you know, everyone in the group and how they're thinking about it. And really, and sometimes the plan itself is a useful product, but the process is also such an important part of, you know, having all those conversations that, that, you know, thinking about what are, what is our direction? What are our goals? Um, having all those co- conversations in a lot of ways, to me is even more important than what ends up on the page. Although that also is important. You know, people want to see that it's actually used so that they don't feel like it was just a lot of hot air and and a waste of time. It makes me also think about, I know you know a lot about design thinking, and it makes me think about even within that process, not only is it important for buy-in and engagement, but there are things especially that we don't always know about depending on where we are in the organization. So unless we're pulling from all aspects of the organization through that process, we might miss something. And in design thinking, there's that concept of bringing in sort of the smart but naive other. So the person who doesn't have all the information about whatever's being talked about and really having that person there to ask questions and get clarification and guidance. And so pulling from that, as well as I was just uh, doing a leadership training the other day, and we were talking about Barry Ashri's concept of tops, middles, and bottoms within an organization and how tops feel really lonely and isolated and like burdened because they they have to make all the decisions about everything. And middles in an organization feel kind of pulled between the tops and the bottoms. So they're managing people below them, but then they're responding to the people above them. And then often the people at the bottom, you know, I don't necessarily love the terms top, middle, bottoms, but it's it's shorthand and gives you kind of a visceral, real example of 
or feeling of what this is. And the bottoms, you know, often feel like they have no idea what's going on, that they're at the whim of the, the manager or the middle or the top and just kind of there without knowing. And so really bringing all three of those levels into a strategic planning process or any planning process is really important. While yeah. also being clear who that it is the tops that have the decision-making power. I've seen in some nonprofits that are really trying to have like a flat structure and everybody's important. And yes, that's true. And there needs to be clear leadership. So you can have a clear process for gathering information, but then it needs to be clear how the decision is going to be made, who's going to be making the decision and the timeline for that upfront. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think sometimes with the notion that boards should drive the strategy for an organization, there's this tendency to, and, and kind of also a sense of let's, let's make it more manageable. So we'll have less people involved. And then, yeah, you, you miss all of those perspectives. But then, as you said, so important for folks who are leading the process to also say, we're gathering input from all these different groups and this and this group, the board and senior staff or, you know, a, whatever group it is, is ultimately tasked with um, finalizing the plan, approving the plan, um, are the ultimate decision makers. So be getting clear and being clear about that decision making process is really is also so key to because you can have lots and lots of involvement, but if you don't do that piece right, you can actually demoralize people because they thought that they had equal say in this, and then something that they were very passionate about didn't, you know, doesn't emerge in the final plan. And they wonder, well, well, what was that for? What was the point? So being clear about, you know, we're taking input from lots of people, but you know, not everything's going to get in there. For one, it's not going to be, you know, Christmas tree ornaments for everybody, but also like who's who's actually making the final decision. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the areas that you focus on is somatics and leadership. Mm-hmm. Can you define what somatics is first? And then we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit about how, how that shows up in leadership. So somatics comes from the word soma, which is body. So it's about the the body within leadership. And I really love, there's a great book called Your Body is Your Brain by Amanda Blake. And she talks about three concepts. Um, I have it here because I always mix them up. So exteroception, proprioception, and interoception. And so extero, if you think about ex, like external, that's our, our five senses. So seeing and touching and hearing and smelling and tasting, all that is our exteroception. So that's, we're gathering information. In, three different ways and re- and responding to information in three different ways. Then there's our proprioception, which is our awareness of where we are in space. So you might also tie that to sort of leadership presence. Like how are you using your body in space? Are you standing firm? Are you standing, you know, shoulders broad and relaxed? And yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that you are clear, clear in your stance. And then interoception is the part where I think it gets the most exciting and juicy, but it's all important. That's sort of the internal. So physiological, the gut feeling or my heart or this. And it, you know, some people think it's kind of woo woo, but it's not because there's a real physiology going on and your body often knows things before your brain knows them. Like literally your vagus nerve connects right from your gut to your brain and bypasses the sort of cognitive part of your brain and goes right to the instinctual part of your brain. And is often you're taking in information and making a decision about it at a subcognitive level, at sort of your fight, fight, flight, freeze, animalistic instinct level before your cognition is even aware of it. And so the more we can become aware of our internal 
feeling sense, the more powerful we can be as leaders because we're using both our intelligence, our emotional intelligence, as well as what I call our somatic intelligence, our body's data gathering and processing. Yeah. And as you know, science learns more and more about this, the whole notion that we're mind, body, and spirit, that they're three separate things, you know, it's, it's really all one, right? Yeah. And the, the body, I mean, how can you, I mean, your brain is part of your body, so it seems kind of obvious, but at the same time, we experience it uh, ourselves as a, as a different thing. So it's really interesting. To, and, you know, so much of our culture has, you know, kind of demonized feeling like, set your feelings at the door, we're professional, being, you know, what does professional mean? And, and then, you know, what does leader mean? All of those things kind of, at least in, I think, sometimes what people think about disconnects a lot of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and if you think about it, like, think about when you're in a really energetic mood, or in a really tired, or depressed, or sad, just run down mood and how much work you can get done or not get done or how responsive in a way that takes care of relationships in a positive way you are or you aren't depending on how your internal state is. And we're not taught in this culture to pay attention to those things. I mean, I have a six and a half year old and I try to remember to engage with my kid about, oh, are you feeling this? I see that you're angry or I see that you're frustrated and kind of name emotions so that he can start to work with those things. And at the same time, there's, it's just not, it's not talked about. And there's, you know, I, th I do think that there is a line. I'm not necessarily an advocate for bring everything in the door and to the table at work. Like, while I want, I want the whole person to be there, but not necessarily all of the person. It's like the integrated wholeness of the person is able to show up and that person is able to manage what needs to be in the room and what doesn't need to be in the room. I used to joke that the, the definition for me of maturity is knowing when to be immature and when not. So it's not being <laughs> mature all the time. It's like knowing when to bring it and when not to. And I think it's the same thing about emotional intelligence, somatic intelligence, any of this. Like we need our emotions and we need our gut instincts and yet we haven't been taught to cultivate and manage them. Yeah. And then that, that brings uh, to mind kind of what you were talking about before in terms of, you know, setting boundaries and having appropriate boundaries. I mean, I think when our culture was kind of first exploring all this in the sixties and seventies, it very much was this just like, you know, let it all hang out, whatever. And, you know, learning over time that actually that doesn't work at all. And it can be very detrimental to relationships. So yeah, being able to manage, not only recognize, but manage emotions and manage your response as an adult is, is a lot of what that's about. And I think this bridges sort of into the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation, because when I think about the whole person, it's mind, body, spirit, emotions, and identity. So those five aspects, and we need our mind, we need our body, we need our emotions, our spirit or our values, however you want to define that for yourself. And then our identity is really important. So all of the social, social identity aspects of who we are, whether that's race or gender or gender identity or sexual orientation or religion, and there's a whole plethora of them. And that's another piece of we do need to be able to bring our whole, whole identity to work. And we need leaders who are creating systems and environments where the diversity of those identities is able to thrive and be included and engaged with and valued and not there's an, you know often there's a oh leave that part of your identity at the door and so 
I do think that bringing whole identity to work is important, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're talking all about various aspects of it if it's not relevant to the work at hand. And I wonder whether people in a, in a dominant position or a leadership position and, um, you know, in a white dominant culture or, or you know, uh, whether people even realize that they're asking, they're assuming that people will leave those identities at the door and show up in a way that fits what's, what's perceived, you know, in the dominant culture as kind of the right way to be at work. Absolutely. And I think there are shifts happening in some spaces. And obviously we have a greater awareness around this as a country with the Black Lives Matter movement and other aspects, but I think there's a long way to go. And to me, this is what ties into the somatic intelligence work is I really think that leaders need to get good at noticing what's coming up for them when they start to engage in these spaces, because a lot of times it can be scary. You don't want to get into legal troubles. You don't want to offend someone. And so often people, in order to protect, end up not even stepping into the space and not even having the conversations. And so it's really about doing as people who have what we call dominant identities, which, you know, this white Christian male uh, there's a, a heterosexual, there are a range of dominant identities in, in our American culture. And those of us with them need to do some work to realize that we have them and what it means. It's not a, necessarily a problem that we have them. It is what it is. And so we need to realize that it is what it is and then begin to work with it and ask ourselves, what are our values? What do I want to be seeing? What do I want my organization to be like, and how can I play a role in creating that? And what kind of steps do you think, if leaders want to start stepping into this work, that they can start taking? A first step might just be mapping your own identities, identity maps. So, you know, put yourself in the middle, draw a circle and a bunch of lines coming off of that and think about all of those aspects that make you who you are, whether it's where you are in your sibling order, if you have siblings, the economic situation that you grew up in and are in now, your education level, your race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender, identity, a range of all those. And then once you write sort of that map of who you are, then look through them and which try to label which are dominant and which aren't. And then take some time with each of those and think, okay, what makes this dominant? How is the world set up to such that things are easier for me because I have this identity? What, what are the systems allowing for me because I just happen to have this identity? And then get in conversation with other people who have similar identities to you who are also trying to work on this. So one of the things that's really important and I imagine folks have heard a lot about is not putting the emotional labor onto people who have what we call the marginalized or subordinated identities. So it's not their job to educate us. There's a lot of information out there already, some really great books, and we could even include a list of some of those, especially around race as part of this, and to be doing your own learning and engaging with others who are similar identity to you doing their learning as well. And that, I think, is important to to have those spaces of similar identities so that people can can have all the emotions they are having without that putting emotional labor on other people. So, you know, this whole notion of white fragility and, you know, people are going to have their emotions, they're going to get triggered um, and shaming them and bullying them to just, well, just stop doing that is not helpful at the same time. 
a person of color, a person with another marginalized identity doesn't, or, or intersection of those, doesn't need to hear that same, have these, you know, have that same conversation over and over and over and over again. So how can we create spaces so that people can, you know, start their baby steps, uh, white people can start their baby steps in this um, conversation and, and have, you know, have the full experience of it all mm-hmm. um, and work through it. Yeah, absolutely. Carol, I totally agree with what you're saying there. And I think you're hitting on a key point, which is that it's, I believe it's necessary to feel the emotions that are associated with this. A lot, I know a lot of white women who I've interacted with, especially have felt guilt or shame or sadness as they become more and more aware of what the white dominant culture and their role in that has created in this country. I've heard experiences from colleagues of color of mine who have had white men end up really angry in their sessions when they hear about things. And these are generalizations and men can get sad and women can get angry. But I believe we need to feel those emotions and become aware of them and let them move through us. Because as we talked about a little while ago, feelings are literally physiological. There's biological things happening in your body when you feel something. And if you just try to suppress it, it doesn't really actually go away. So where are the spaces where that can be released, where it can be acknowledged, processed, looked at, digested, and then do that in a safe space with support and then step into the other spaces of leadership of mixed identity interaction. So I don't, I want to say clean, where none of us are, are super clean when it comes to it, but, but having, um, Sort of if we through you, a little bit of the muck, at least. Yeah, it's like and you cleaned take up it. Your boots. <laughs> exactly, cleaned up your boots are like simmered down your sauce, and yeah. so you're, it's it's still working there. I think that's really important, and I think too often the message that especially white people hear is, oh, like don't bring your white fragility. We don't want to see that, and it's not to say don't have your emotions. It's be aware of where where you are displaying them and the kind of help you are seeking for them, but. I say do have those emotions, become very aware of them, and don't get stuck in them. There's this great, Brene Brown also talks a lot about the difference between guilt and shame. And some of, I'm part of this learning, some of the learning I've been doing is through WARA, the White Women's Anti-Racism Alliance. And they take Brene Brown's work and talk about the difference between guilt and shame. And guilt, well, so shame says something is wrong with me. I am bad. And then guilt says, I did something bad. And so if we say, oh, I did something bad, then we have agency. Oh, I I did something bad, I can do something different. And so if we stay in our shame as whatever dominant identity we might be working with in that shame, if we stay there, we're never going to be able to step into action and making the world a better place. On the other hand, there's also often people want to jump to action right away. Like, oh, like, this is a problem, let me fix it. And a lot of advocates of color who I've been interacting with have said, like, please, like, don't jump to action right away. Please slow down. Please do your learning. Please do your emotional work. Please get clear about why you want to do this work. Like, let's not do this work because it's all the rage right now. Like, what's in it for you? Why is it important for you to make some shifts around racism in this country or around 
bias toward people with different sexual identities, whatever, sexual orientations, whatever it might be. Yeah, that action orientation brings me back to one of the pieces that you work with as well with wanting leaders to bring more mindfulness to what they do. And, Mm -hmm. and again, I'm wondering if you could kind of define mindfulness in this context and why you think it's so important. I think when it comes to leadership, mindfulness is a key tool for engaging our emotional intelligence. So One of my favorite quotes that I came across recently is by Daniel Goleman, who's the journalist who did a lot of work around emotional intelligence and has published a lot of books about it. And he says, the best thing a leader can offer is a well-managed nervous system. And so I have worked with various client systems where the leader can get triggered really quickly and easily and make a lot of assumptions about things. We talk in this work about the ladder of inference. So how quickly we can sort of climb up this ladder of assumptions and infer, oh, well, this person said this for this reason, and this means that, and that means that. And then all of a sudden we're at the top of this ladder. Without even thinking. Yeah. Without even being conscious of jumping up the ladder of like, oh, you know, I'm looking at you now and, oh, she gave me kind of a funny look. She must think I'm a terrible interviewer. I mean, and that's all going on in my head. I may not even be conscious of it. That I've, and I might have I've had left, something in my eye. Right, but I've made meaning of it just just like yeah. that. We're, we're meaning-making machines, yeah. Exactly, and so mindfulness allows us literally to start to see our mind. So we notice, oh, look, oh, look at that thought. Oh, look, I just had a thought about that. Oh, and become more aware of the chatter in our mind and become, have more, again, to use the word agency, have more agency in how we're using our voice and our body and our mind because we become more aware of the automatic parts of it. And it also can allow just a practice of mindfulness can bring more, more pause and space into interactions. And I think those are more and more necessary these days as everything is so fast and if we just even take a breath before we respond, we might actually be able to be in a place of actually responding rather than reacting. And so the response to me is where there's the choice and the agency and um, the re- reaction is where it's just automatic coming maybe even from that interoception, that automatic physiological reaction which sometimes serves us and sometimes doesn't. And what we need is to become more and more aware of it. So that's, that's what I'd say about yeah, that. The I, other, that- I was just going to tie it into also the virtual world. I think it's, again, even more important in a virtual space to both engage mindfulness and engage the whole person. So, you know, we can become, as we are in Zoom, i gesturing here with this rectangle, that we forget that we have the rest of our body and we forget that, it might be easier even in a normal interaction. We might, if I were talking to you in a cafe, I might turn and look out the window while I'm talking to you and think, and that might shift how my brain is working. But because we're so used to so far, the norms in our culture are to really just look at that rectangle and look at each other on the screen that we're literally not being mindful in the same ways that we might have otherwise. So how do you see, since people are just, you know, the reality of us working this way, working online, working remotely is probably going to be going on for quite a while. What are some things that people can do to bring in um, more of themselves to online meetings? So I, I'm smiling because one of the things that's come, I've been working on lately and telling clients and colleagues is to think about that spinning thing on your screen that says buffering. We, we hate it when that happens, but how are you creating buffers in your day? 
So it's not just the on-screen, but the between meetings or between being at the meeting and being with whoever or whatever is in your household. How are you creating spaces? Because literally we used to walk down a hallway to a meeting or get up and switch offices or pick up the phone. Something shifted and took our eyes from the screen. And so one of the things is just to give yourself those buffer zones. And another is to literally take some time, whether it's a chime in your calendar or in your watch or a post-it note to take three breaths at various points in the middle of the day. Um, And that you can even engage sort of the full mind, body, spirit aspect with those three breaths. So like on the first breath, what am I feeling? On the second breath, what am I thinking? And on the third breath, what's important to me? And that can really bring you back, like what's important in this moment to me, bring you back to what being present with whatever it is that that really you want to be present with rather than reactionary, what you just happen to be being present with. I also have a whole set of questions that I go through when either designing a virtual meeting or working with others on it about how can we bring in all of those parts of a person. So what are the kinds of questions? So you can ask your colleagues, like, what do you feel about this? What's your gut reaction? What's your, what's your heart telling you? What, what would you, what's your instinct on this? And then you can say, you know, what's your mind thinking on this? Like what ideas, what new ideas have you noticed? What are you thinking about now? How does this connect to the other things? And so you start to engage the brain in that. And so that's the body brain piece. And then there's just, a range, we just need to get creative. Like what, how does this tie to your values, to our values as a company that starts to get to the spirit and values aspect of thing. And then there can be questions like look around the virtual room, who's not in the room. And when it comes to virtual meetings, there's a lot around inclusion. So not necessarily identity, but inclusion when it comes to like, are you remembering to try to engage the people who don't have their cameras on in the virtual meeting? Is there a norm that people have to have their cameras on, but maybe they can't, maybe their bandwidth is low, maybe their house is a mess, maybe somebody else is in the room with them. So what are the aspects of inclusion that we need to think about to make this virtual space a psychologically safe space? Yeah, and even thinking about the buffering, I, I was uh, working with some folks who were talking about uh, facilitating in a in a virtual setting and just saying that it just takes a little bit longer for people to kind of absorb an instruction if you're wanting them to go do a next thing, let's say put them in breakout rooms, let's say have them work on a separate document that you've sent a link to, and to, to create those pauses in the meeting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and almost imagining that buffer uh, thing spinning. And their technique was to, when you've asked a question, assume that it's going to take everyone a little bit longer to answer because they're kind of waiting to see if anyone else is going to say something and actually take a drink of water Mm. while you wait to force yourself to wait a little bit. I like that. Somebody once told me that children's brains as they're learning takes longer to process. So to wait 17 seconds after you ask your child a question, which feels so long. So I don't do that long online, but I do sometimes count to seven or 10 just to see. And I think that's very true. I've had a lot of experiences lately where I've given an instruction, we've gone to the next thing, and then the person, the group, two or three people in the group of seven have no idea what to do. And it's had me realize, and again, if you think about it, we're not giving our nervous system any time to decompress or get in a place of being able to really absorb information again when we're constantly 
looking in the screen. And so to I sometimes also give instruction to folks of, you know, get up, stand up for a minute or stretch or literally please look away from your screen while you think about this. So sometimes you have to be more overt in in the instruction and then also slow down, as you said, and repeat yourself and then also provide the information in multiple formats. So I'll often put instructions in chat as well as verbally say them and that sort of thing. So absolutely. There's so many things to pay attention to. And, and probably all things that would be good to bring back to when we're in person again, mm-hmm. you know, working with groups that to take that pause and make sure that everyone's, uh, you know, understood the instructions of what's next or where you are on the agenda in a meeting or, or anything. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So one thing I like to do on each episode is I play a little game. I have a box of random icebreaker questions. And so I've got one for you here. My question is, how did you meet your best friend? So I, there's a childhood one, but here's my my adult best friend. It's a kind of fun story. Is I She was the babysitter the summer after I went to college for my younger sibling. And so I had been in college. My parents were divorced. I went to see my father and I heard about this babysitter who was so great that was with my younger siblings at my mother's house. And I remember thinking like, who is this person taking over the older sibling role? Like what? And um, came home, eventually met her. And within half an hour, she was my best friend. (laughs) And we've been really good friends ever since. And I think it's been about uh, 20 years. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So what are you excited about now? What's up next for you? Kind of what's emerging in your work? A few different things that I'm excited about. One is I am really excited, as you know, we've talked in other times about this, about um, peer coaching, peer learning, and people being able to really connect and learn from and with each other in small groups. And I'm really excited about engaging with that in a virtual space so that people are having, I feel like the peer coaching really involves the whole person. It's not just sort of sitting back in a lecture on a webinar, listening to somebody, but it really engages people and it engages people around what's important to them in the moment. And it allows them to be helpful and of service to other people. And I think that's so important for us as humans for mental health to just feel of value. Um, So I'm going to be setting up some opportunities for people with within similar industries, but not in the same organization to come together in peer learning group and connect with each other. So I'm really excited about that possibility and really what's possible with that globally right now, because we don't have to get together in person for it and we can't get together in person for it. So who can come together? I'm working with some of the groups that I do consulting to that they focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some of them have been around one of them for 30 years, another for 50 years. And so they really know their stuff and their stuff has been in the room, like physically together. And so I'm really excited about helping them think about how to take it all virtually and keep it really effective and engaging. And then finally, I'm contemplating, and I might want to rope Carol into this, listeners, so maybe by the time you listen to this, she will have said yes. I want to develop a a virtual workshop about 
engaging the whole person. So go more in depth into some of those example questions and example scenarios that we touched on around engaging those five aspects of the people of a person, mind, body, spirit, emotions, and identity. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Excited about all those. So how can people find out more about you and be in touch? So they could email me or I'm also on LinkedIn. My email is many letters. It's Becca at BeccaBartholomew.com. So that's B-E-C-C-A at B-E-C-C-A-B-A-R-T-H-O-L-O-M-E-W.com. So that's my email, Becca Bartholomew. And we'll put put the links uh, in the show notes as well. Okay, that makes it easier. And then I, I'm also on LinkedIn as Becca Bartholomew. So I'd love, I'd love to hear people's reactions. What did you agree with, disagree with? What questions do you have? Let's keep the conversation going. That would be awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out.